Good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to you all to Hillhead here at the Grosvenor. We're glad to see you all, especially on this holiday weekend when many of our own folks are away. Our Minister Katrina is on leave, so leading our worship this morning is Graham Meeklejohn, who's a lecturer in theology and communications coordinator at the Scottish Baptist College. Thank you for coming. We are delighted that you and your wife, Charlie, are here, and uh, we look forward to what God's going to say to us through you. Thank you very much. Everything we need to follow the service, including the word of God. Good morning. It's good to be here and good to join with you once again. I'm going to open our worship this morning by reading from Psalm 100 as a call to worship, as a way to get our minds focused on our reason for being here this morning. Psalm 100, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. As we move into our time of worship, let us sing our first hymn this morning, All People That On Earth Do Dwell. So let's stand if you can and sing this first hymn.
Jeez. It's good to be here and it's good to join together in worship. It's good to take this time out of our week to really just take some time to focus on God and what he is saying to us today. And as we continue our worship, we're going to go into a time of prayer, at the end of which we'll pray the Lord's Prayer together. So let's pray together now. Gracious God, Prince of Peace, we thank you for the beautiful world in which you have placed us, for the wonders of creation, for the beauties of nature. We thank you for giving us a world to share with sisters and brothers, for the variety of human experience, and for the example of those who have gone before us. We thank you that you have provided abundantly for human need, but not for human greed. Forgive us that so often we demand more than we need and that we back our demands with force and strife. Forgive us when we stray into the paths of violence and hatred, when our culture is an environment of hostility to the other. For the times when we stray into the paths of hatred and violence, when we fail to look out for others. For the times we are quick to judge others as to whether or not they are worthy of compassion or support. Forgive us for the times when we fail to see long-term consequences blinded by short-term self-interest, for our apathy, our selfishness, or inaction, for the times we are quick to anger and slow to listen, hearing what chimes with our own outlook and prejudice, rather than that which is helpful and true. Forgive us, Lord, for our acceptance of the status quo, our acquiescence with the sins of the power, for our failure to speak and act against that which is evil, hateful, or unloving. Forgive us in our silence and our inaction. Strengthen and enable us to act with compassion, to build bridges, not walls, to speak out against injustice, to resist the works of the evil one. Father in heaven, give us courage to love our enemies and to love all others as you have loved us. Help us to be more like Jesus, who took direct action in the temple, who is the friend of the poor, who calls us to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable, and who is the Prince of Peace. And now as we continue to pray, let us pray together with the words that you taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, it's time to go into the responsive psalm led by the choir but for all of us to join in
morning to, to get here. Um, I was gathering all my things together and, and my wife says to me, you know last time you spoke at Hillhead you started off by mentioning Disney. You'll be getting a name for yourself but make no apologies for that. If anyone remembers that last time I spoke about Disneyland then I'm going to do it again today. I wanted to know if anyone had a favourite Disney character or a Disney cartoon or any cartoon. It doesn't have to be Disney and if you do then why? Does anyone want to volunteer? Dumbo. Dumbo. Any reason why? Just like elephants? And he's gorgeous. Fair enough. Fair enough, yeah. Anyone else? Maybe we're not Disney fans here, which could be difficult for me. <laughs> no? Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, I, I like Belle from Beauty and the Beast as well. Do you think the Beast is better before he transforms or after he transforms? The ter- after, after, oh. Uh, well, my, my favourite, uh, or one of my favourites, if not the favourite, is Tigger. I've got Tigger with me. I've also got it on my pin badge as well. I, I love Tigger. It's just the right amount of obnoxiousness and enthusiasm for him to be hard not to like. Um, but, let's see, is, is he going to sit? No, he's not. He'll have to sit here. Um, uh, it started a couple of years ago, really. Um, well, probably longer than that, but it really struck home to me a few years ago. My, I, I was facing uh, or doing things that I wasn't that comfortable with. I was out of my comfort zone. I didn't feel that confident about. And I'd always described myself as a combination between Tigger and Eeyore, somewhere in between. I think probably lots of people can, can no doubt uh, empathize with that. And I was talking to my friend about how I didn't feel that confident. She said, all you need to do is uh, put on your Tigger suit. You know, embrace your inner tigger. And I thought that, that just resonated with me. It struck. And, I, and the more that um, that got known and the more the, the, the word spread, people saw me when I played football that I was also quite like tigger. Bundles of enthusiasm, totally oblivious to what was going on around me, just chasing the ball like a headless chicken. Um, and, and so this, this, it really struck with me about tigger. A few years later, my friends clubbed together and actually got me a tigger suit. So I'm now the proud owner of a Tigger onesie. I almost thought about wearing it to speak this morning, <laughs> but I thought it would probably be quite warm, and I'm not sure that my wife would have been seen with me walking down Byers Road in my Tigger suit. Um, so uh, my, my wife was uh, long-suffering with this, uh, and as we got married last summer, um, as part of our, our honeymoon plans, my wife is from uh, California, I said, how about we go to Disneyland as part of our honeymoon? 
And I don't know whether it was reluctantly agreed or something within her, I also said actually that would be quite fun. So we went to Disneyland um, as part of our honeymoon. And, and Disneyland's great. Um, it claims to be um, the most magical place on earth. I think Hogwarts might have some uh, claim to that as well. But it's true that as soon as you step outside of the, the metropolis that is LA and into Disneyland, it's just a completely different feel. Um, they say that Disneyland almost um, epitomizes the American dream uh, where anything is possible. You, you step into this dream world. And Disneyland, it, it represents more than just a place. It embodies this idea of dreams coming true and a magical kingdom. It's not just places that embody a little bit more than just the place. People can do it as well. I had the um, delight or the terror of growing up in my teenage years in the era of boy bands and girl bands. And I distinctly remember the Spice Girls being launched in the mid-90s. And whether you love their music or whether you hate their music, they embodied something of this new wave of feminism, embodied this idea of girl power. And more than their music, that message, I think, has lived on beyond them. And so the Spice Girls themselves are synonymous now with this idea of girl power. So whether it's a place or whether it's a people, um, it's, it's usual for us to embody something more than just the place or the people. A message, an idea. And I'm going to be thinking a little bit more about that later on in the context of the people of Israel. But for now, I think it's suffice to say that as the church, we are called to embody something more than just ourselves. We're called to embody that we are God's presence on earth. That through the Holy Spirit dwelling in each one of us and as a community, we're called to be God's presence in the world. And I hope to unpack a little bit more of that as I speak later on. We'll continue our service now by singing our next hymn and we'll stand and sing again, If You Believe and I Believe. Let's stand and sing this reading is from 1st Samuel chapter 8 verses 4 to 20. Then all the leaders of Israel met together, went to Samuel and Ramah and said to him, look you're getting old and your sons don't follow your example. So then appoint a king to rule over us so that we will have a king as other countries have. Samuel was displeased with their request for a king so he prayed to the Lord and the Lord said, Listen to everything the people say to you. 
You are not the one they have rejected. I am the one they have rejected as their king. Ever since I brought them out of Egypt, they have turned away from me and worshipped other gods. And now they are doing to you what they have always done to me. So then, listen to them. But give them strict warnings and explain how their kings will treat them. Samuel told the people who were asking him for a king everything the Lord had said to him. This is how your king will treat you, Samuel explained. He will make soldiers of your sons. Some of them will serve in his war chariots, others in his cavalry, and others will run before his chariots. He will make some of them officers in charge of a thousand men and others in charge of 50 men. Your sons will have to plough his fields, harvest his crops, and make his weapons and the equipment for his chariots. Your daughters will have to make perfumes for him and work as his cooks and his bakers. He will take your best fields, vineyards and olive groves and give them to his officials. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your grapes for his court officers and other officials. He will take your servants and your best cattle and donkeys and make them work for him. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that time comes, you will complain bitterly because of your king, whom you yourselves chose, but the Lord will not listen to your complaints. The people paid no attention to Samuel, but said, No, we want a king, so that we will be like other nations, with our own king to rule us, and to lead us out to war and to fight our battles. And then from 1 Kings chapter 6, starting at verse 37. The foundation of the temple was laid in the second month, the month of Ziv, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign. In the eighth month, the month of Bul, in the eleventh year of Solomon's reign, the temple was completely finished, exactly as it had been planned. It had taken Solomon seven years to build it, Solomon also built a palace for himself, and it took him 13 years. I'm going to uh, speak to uh, these passages a bit later on, but uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Charlie and I were down in London, and I'm not an expert in, on architecture, but we were down there for a wedding, so we decided on the Sunday after the wedding on the Saturday to, to wander around London, and I love wandering around London to look at its architecture and its buildings. Uh, we hopped on the, the subway on the tube, and we got off just uh, by the Shard, which is this picture. I took these pictures while I was down there, uh, and we walked from the Shard along the south bank of the Thames, uh, past the Globe. Uh, theatre over Millennium Bridge, looked down the river towards Tower Bridge, and then approached uh, St Paul's, which is this picture here. Um, and then from St Paul's, we walked down Fleet Street and Strand into Trafalgar Square um, and Nelson's Column. For anyone who knows London, you can probably follow that route. Uh, and I love these buildings. Um, and I'm not going to labour this point, but to me, they all represent something quite different, more than just the buildings themselves. You look at the Shard, and it's such an impressive building. It towers so far into uh, the sky, and yet, it, to me, it also speaks of just how dominant finance, economics, and the capitalism of London is. 
because it just towers above everything else. And there's such a focus on, on that, particularly in that area of London. And then it, it was great seeing the Globe Theatre. I've never actually seen it up close up close before this was the first time that I managed to see it and there's no better building I think to represent uh, the stage the theatre than the globe it's so recognizable and how it looks and its shape and everything about it just represents um, the, the theatre so well uh, across Millennium Bridge up to St Paul's I remember a couple of years ago walking through the grounds of St Paul's and it was at the time of the Occupy protests um, and to me, there was just this contrast. It was great that the St. Paul's were allowing people to camp out and demonstrate against the inequalities of our um, economic system. And yet, at the same time, St. Paul's itself is such an opulent building. It's so, it represents so much about the Christian faith, but then at the same time, it also is so extravagant and uh, so costly in the way it is built. And then, of course, we wandered down to Trafalgar Square and Nelson's Column. And it's a great testament to remind us of the once great British Empire. And yet, any time we mention the once great British Empire, we also hear the, the, the sense of the, the, the tragedies of colonization. And so, it, no building, I think, has, has just quite one message. There's always a duality um, there's always two things usually going on, if not more, um, as, we, as we look at buildings. And it's within that context um, that I want to approach these passages today. Um, and really, we're going to be doing a, a, a gallop through the Old Testament, um, from tabernacle to temple, is what I've called it. Um, is this going to work? Maybe. <laughs> I'll keep going and we'll see if it, it uh, turns on and I can get us back up to speed. Uh, where I want to start is um, at the tabernacle and at the very beginning of the story of the people of Israel. And when I say the people of Israel or refer to the nation of Israel today, I'm not really making a comment on the present country of Israel. Um, there's lots going on there. There's lots of discussion about it. But that's not really what I want to address this morning. Yes, there might be things that can be drawn from it. Um, but my intention this morning is not to speak about the current situation, but the historic people of Israel as we find them in the Old Testament. And in, at the kind of midpoint of Exodus, um, around Exodus 20 and through to Exodus 40, we start to see Moses talk about this idea of the tabernacle. We see Moses go up Mount Sinai and there's this foreshadowing of the tabernacle when God's presence descends on Mount Sinai and the cloud settles on Mount Sinai as Moses is there. And this word settle at least in the original language, is very similar to the word tent. And this is what embodies the, the, what the tabernacle is. The tabernacle is a tent where God's presence settles, where God's presence dwells. And so the tabernacle is where God dwells among his people. But as Moses is up uh, on Mount Sinai, as he is um, meeting with God, as God's presence is there, he comes down the mountain and we probably know the story, he finds the people of Israel worshipping the golden calf. 
in their impatience, in their desire to have a God to lead them, they've set up a false God. It's almost as if they've come from Egypt where they were slaves and Egypt's had this pantheon of gods, some very visible, clear gods that they could follow, that lead them, that they can worship. And the Israelite people have wanted to be like a nation like that in their impatience. They've set up a God that they can worship. And and it really says that um, Israel looks for a God to lead them and their impatience lay at the root of this sin. This is what uh, a commentator Cole says about this passage. Let me see if I can get this up now. But it says, the impatience lay at the root of this sin. At the heart is Israel's longing to have a visible God and a solid identity like other nations, such as Egypt, had. So we see Moses then uh, take the intent of the meeting in, re- in response to the fact that the, the Israelites have set up this false God. Uh, Moses takes the tent of the meeting this tent where God's presence is, and he takes it outside of the settlement. Now, it's quite common in in this era for um, a sanctuary to be placed outside of the main settlement. But in doing this, Moses has very specifically um, taken God's presence from being among the people to outside of the people of Israel. And again, Cole comments that Israel has therefore lost her uniqueness as the nation among who God dwells in the very midst. You see, the unique thing about Israel, the thing that made them different from other nations around them, was that their God was to dwell among them. This was what was unique about them. The the tabernacle, the tent of the meeting, where God's presence was, where he dwelled, was to be in and among the people. And in taking this tent of the meeting outside of the settlement, Israel's unique identity is destroyed, is taken away. But as we see towards the end of Exodus and Exodus 40, Exodus ends with the fulfillment of God dwelling among them as the cloud descends on the tent of the meeting. Moses goes back up Mount Sinai, reestablishes the covenant with God, and God says, I will dwell among my people. And so he comes down, sets up the tabernacle amongst the people and God's cloud descends on the tent of the meeting, on the tabernacle, and he does indeed dwell among his people. So the nation of Israel is established as their unique identity as having a God who dwells among them. Let's see if I can find this now. There we go. Done the tabernacle, so on to the kingdom. Big cheer. Uh, So this is the passage that we read this morning, 1 Samuel 8. Um, And Brueggemann says that this occupies a pivotal place in in the history of Israel as a nation. And it's a pivotal place because it redefines what Israel is like. Um, Brueggemann has suggested in his commentary that there could be various motivations for Israel wanting wanting a king, demanding a king. He says it could be that there was the threat of an external nation, another nation, and they wanted a king to rally behind, um, whether that was most likely to be Babylon, and they thought if we have a king, we can have military might. Or he says it could have been um, that a number of wealthy people 
um, had established uh, money for themselves, riches for themselves, and they wanted a king who would guarantee uh, security and protection for their wealth. So there's a few different reasons why they wanted, uh, where, why they might want a king. But really, the explicit motivation is to be like other nations. And we see this in 1 Samuel 8 and 5 as we read. The yearning for monarchy is driven by powerful fear and a hunger for security. Just like they got impatient at the foot of Mount Sinai and set up a false god. Here, they, from an insecurity uh, and a desire, again, to be like other nations. They want a king. And so in setting up a king, they remove something that is unique about Israel. This extended quote here, this is to Samuel an alarming request. The request suggests an intense dispute concerning the character and identity of this community. From its inception at Sinai, it was understood that Israel was chosen by Yahweh and that this chosen community of covenant was not to be like other nations. And so in their desire for a king, in their um, longing to be like another nation, they undermine what was unique about Israel. Whereas all the other nations can have kings, they were, Israel was supposed to be set up to have God at their center. The God was the um, idea, was the concept, was the person that they united under. And in setting up a king, they were saying that we want to be united under a king rather than under God. And so it destroyed the foundation, the uniqueness um, of the, the people of Israel. The shift to a kingdom uh, abandoned Israel's foundations. And Samuel's warning likens a kingdom to being enslaved like they once were. In Israel, there's lots of resonances about where, how they were set up early on in Exodus to them demanding a king. Samuel says to them, you'll be enslaved. Your, your sons and daughters, they will uh, go back into slavery. And, and you hear resonances of the time that they were in Egypt. Um, and for the people of Israel, they were always trying to avoid being enslaved again. But this is exactly what Samuel says will happen if they have a king. In ancient Israel and in all other communities that organize power for some at the expense of others, there is the rejection of what Yahweh holds dear and the sadness of wishing it were otherwise. When the powerful are set up in power against at the expense of others. I was reading just this weekend a book on hospitality and it was saying one of the, um, one of the hallmarks one of the identifiers of the people of Israel was that they were to be an alien nation. That when they came out of Egypt and they were aliens in Egypt, when they were brought out of Egypt, God said to them, you're still to remain an alien nation. That this land that I'm giving you is my land and you are going to be aliens within my land. And the reason that this was important was that when you are strangers, when you're aliens, you're always more welcome to others, in, to welcoming others into your community, to seeing the aliens, the widows, the strangers, and welcoming them into that community. And so God says, that is what I want you always to remember, that just as you're an alien nation in my land, so you should welcome others who are different to you into your nation. Now, the, 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 the nation of Israel weren't very good at doing this um, throughout their lifetime, but that was what they were supposed to do. But here, what is happening is as they move to a kingdom, that that 
idea is lost, that no longer are they looking for those who are weak or those who are other or those who they should be welcoming in, but instead they're setting up power and, set, and starting to become a nation defined by who they are to the exclusion of others. And so demanding a king undermines the foundation of the people of Israel. Moving on a little bit further to talk about the temple as they have established a kingdom. We've had King David and now in the time of King Solomon, King Solomon starts to build a temple. And the temple could um, be considered a second tabernacle as they have so many overlapping ideas in fact some commentators think that the temple was built and then the description of the tabernacle was written it doesn't really matter in some senses but there are a lot of resonances between what the temple looks like and what the tabernacle was to look like and so the temple in some way functioned as a second tabernacle it was the place where God was to dwell and again, the same word for dwelling is used here in 1 Kings 6 and 7 as it was back in those Exodus passages. However, it seems to be a different kind of dwelling because God said when the tabernacle was established, he said, I will be among you and I will go with you. As Israel wandered through the desert, God was always with them and moved with them. And as they went into the promised land, God moved with them into the promised land. But here they've set up a temple, which is a permanent structure, a place that doesn't move. They've, they've stopped moving and God says, well, I'll come and dwell among you. But it's now conditional on the obedience of the people and the faithfulness of the king. And we read that in these passages um, in 1 Kings 6 and 7. If you read it more, God says, I'll dwell among you, but it's conditional on your obedience to me. And we know that the kings weren't always very obedient to God and the people of Israel weren't, very, weren't obedient to God. And in fact, I think you get a hint of this in the passage, in the very short passage we read today. There's some dispute over this, but it really uh, was striking to me that when you read about the temple, it's far smaller than Solomon's pa palace. And it takes far less time to build than Solomon's palace. It's almost as if you can see where Solomon's priorities are lying, that he wants to set up his palace far bigger, far more grand than the temple was. The temple almost seems like a side project to him. As I say, there's some debate over that because of the way that they're positioned within the te text. But it's striking to me that the priorities never seem to be around the temple. It was always around something else for the people of Israel. And so Solomon's temple uh, would be no guarantee of God's presence or favour. The final chapter of Kings casts a dark shadow over every bright bit of gold and polished brass. In fact, Nelson says as well, Kings ends with the reversal of this exodus in a traumatic return to Egypt. And again, we hear resonances of this, uh, of the Sinai narrative as they've just come out of Egypt. The whole of kings just seems to be a slow and steady demise of the people of Israel as different kings um, come to rule uh, and they slow slip away from the obedience to God and they end up a people in exile. The God of the Bible, Nelson writes, the God of the Bible does make guarantees but they do not involve structures, systems or human institutions. 
God's promise to the people of Israel was to dwell among them and go with them. And here we've seen them move from Israel as a people who wandered to a people who settled to stagnation into a nation under a king who built their identity and their security around their temple, around their fortified city walls to the exclusion of others. So three passages uh, digging into these three ideas. But what are some themes that come through here? What is the wider context? Well, uh, there's some very clear themes here. I've put up being impatient, wanting to be like other nations. Their impatience and their insecurity of who they were as a nation, their identity under God dwelling among them. But they were impatient with that. They were insecure in that identity. And the people of Israel always strove to be like other nations. And this undermined their unique identity as the nation who God dwelt among. And there was always this fear that they might end up back in Egypt as an enslaved people. You hear it time and time again, whether it's Samuel's warning um, or whether it is the exile narrative as well. And yet, that is the irony that as much as they tried to do to to protect themselves from going back into slavery, the more that they tried to protect themselves against that, the slow slide towards being into exile. There's a real tragic irony within this narrative of Israel. And I put here, there's a slow change from movement to settlement to stagnation as a people who moved and God moved with them to being settled to stag nation. They move from God as the thing that identifies them as their commonality who holds them together to being united under a king to then being a people who is defined by being in exile. They go from being God's people to a nation with a king to almost a sense of nationalism. And by here a nationalism, I mean by seeing that their identity is as the, as the people who lived in a certain land in a certain place. But more importantly, to the exclusion of other people as well. And so this nationalism started to push others out as well. So these are the main themes, I think, in this grand arc. But how does this help us understand the Bible a bit better? How does this help us understand maybe a bit more uh, relevant for us today? Well, I think it helps us understand about the image of the temple, and helps us understand a bit more when Jesus talks about being the temple. He said, Jesus says that he'll pull down the temple and then three days later he'll rebuild it. And Nelson comments the temple Im- image was instead filled with a new meaning as a metaphor for the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's interesting because as God said that his presence was conditional on the faithfulness of the king, In Jesus, we have a person who was completely faithful to God and completely faithful to creation. And so when the temple was pulled down and rebuilt in in Christ's death and resurrection, it ensured for us that God's presence would forever be with us. That because of Christ's faithfulness to God and his faithfulness to us, then we could guarantee that God's presence would always dwell among us. And that dwelling among us comes in the form of the Holy Spirit, as we see at Pentecost. And Paul picks up on this um, idea in 1 Corinthians 6, says, Do you not know your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received 
from God. That God's presence is permanently among us, is permanently with us as individuals and as a community through the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Once again, our identity as Christians is that God dwells with us. God dwells among us. But it doesn't just end in the here and now. There's also a longer term uh, vision, a, a greater story arc that's happening. I've termed it here the eschatological or ultimate vision. From the very outset, the people of Israel were to be a blessing to all peoples. Um, In the Genesis 11, Tower of Babel, to Genesis 12 um, with Abraham, Abraham is, is promised that he would bless all peoples on earth. All nations, all families, all tribes were to be blessed under Abraham. And Israel is reminded time and time again that they are to be a light to the other nations that they were to be an example to the nations around them. I don't think they ever did this very well in the Old Testament, but this was always the ultimate vision of the people of Israel. And we see it again in Revelation. Uh, Nelson says, in Revelation's picture of God's coming new world, there is no temple in the new Jerusalem. And I think that's a fascinating observation. There doesn't need to be a temple because God's presence is with us. But not only is God's presence with us, but all nations are also there. And Revelation 7, 9 says, There before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. All people are gathered in God's presence. There is no longer this sense of nationalism and excluding people, but instead all people are finally blessed through God's presence being among them. As I come towards the end, uh, I want to think, how does this apply to us? And I really just want to leave these three questions with you. I'm not going to talk about them too much, but hopefully they will be going around your head um, for the rest of the week. Um, I've asked, in our impatience, what displaces God as our common identity? Just as the people of Israel were supposed to be united under God, but their impatience and their insecurity displaced God as being that common factor, I wondered what happens in our own lives? What gives us our sense of identity What is it that we most define ourselves by? Is it our work? Do we throw ourselves into our work and we become synonymous with what we do? Um, Is it the accumulation of wealth? We think if we just had a little bit more money, then we'd be set. Um, It could even be our friends and our family. And in some ways, none of these things are wrong in and of themselves. But if we displace God from being the thing that we are identified as, as our commonality, then we lose our unique identity under God. I think this comes more to bear, particularly within the church as well. I observe a lot of churches who say that their ident- who seem to say that their identity is based in the place that they meet. Perhaps it's pertinent for this congregation as being a displaced congregation, that identity is not just in the place that they meet, or maybe it's in the activities or ministries that they run. This is who they say they are. But actually, as a church, we're called to embody God. We're called to be um, God's presence on earth. That's her identity in this church or any other church. So what, 
in our impatience or our insecurity displaces God as our common identity? When does our desire for sameness and security overtake our openness to others? I think as soon as we are challenged, then we seem to close in, whether that's personally or whether that's as a community. And I think there's a lot that goes on. Sometimes our beliefs, both personally and as a community, um, actually end up excluding people. We say, if you don't believe the same things as us, then you can't join us. Or if you're not the same as us, then you can't join us. Or if you're different from me, or you, you think about things in a different way, or you challenge me in some ways, I don't want to get to know you. We close in on ourselves when we're challenged by difference and otherness. And we see this in the people of Israel, that slow slide from being a people of movement to settlement to stagnation, from God's people to a nation to nationalism. How does that take form in us personally and as a community? Are there things that we believe? Are there things that we do that actually end up shutting people out rather than keeping ourselves open to other people? And what examples are there of embodying God's presence well? How would we as individuals and we as a church embody God's presence well in the world around us? As I was thinking about this, I thought, what examples do I know of? And I suppose I was thinking about things like street pastors who go out onto the streets of Glasgow and other cities um, around the UK, and, and they, in a very low-key way, take God's presence out onto the street to help people um, usually at weekend nights, people coming out of clubs, homeless people and such like, or Glasgow City Mission as well, um, a real embodied presence going out to people who take God's presence with them. It's not about coming into church to experience God's presence, but recognizing that God's presence goes with us. So how can we embody God's presence well in the way that we live as individuals and as a church? Some big important questions I think to be asked there finally two very brief conclusions we need to be sure that we don't displace God's presence which encourages flourishing with human powers which perpetuate oppression a common identity in God leads to openness to difference whereas a common identity in a nation or under a person leads to the exclusion of others. If we recognize that our identity is found in God, if we recognize that everyone has a commonality as being creatures of God, as being God's children, then we should be open to others rather than closing ourselves off. And if we embody God's presence, then we should be encouraging flourishing in life rather than perpetuating oppression and slavery. I hope that's been, it really has been quite a gallop through the Old Testament from, te from tabernacle to temple. But I hope it's been interesting to get that, something of that grand narrative, that story arc that flows through the whole Bible. But I hope it's also been challenging. And I hope that these questions will stay with you as we go into the week ahead. As we respond to this message, we'll sing um, our, another hymn a hymn of response for the healing of the nations. So as we respond to that message, as we let it sink in, let's stand and sing this hymn for the healing of the nations.
pray for others. And I'll leave a space of silence within this prayer for you to pray your own prayers for those who need. Lord God, I thank you that you are our God and that you're here among us. I thank you that by your Spirit within us, we know your presence in our own lives. And we thank you, Lord God, that as we pray to you and as we lift up our thoughts, we know that you will incline your ear towards us and hear our prayers. We know that the goings on in the world, you're not blind to them. You're not oblivious to them. You will not sit a distance removed from them, but you are indeed involved in the world. Lord God, I think of our wider world today, and we pray for the areas still recovering from floods across the world, be it in America, be it in Asia, be it in Africa, anywhere, Lord God, that is suffering from natural disasters. We pray that you would be there with those people. We pray that you would motivate good people to work on your behalf in the aftermath of these events. Lord God, we pray for places around the world that are in, at war. We think particularly of the Middle East and the ongoing wars and unrest there. Father God, as a God of peace, may you come and bring your peace to those situations. May you bring people to the negotiating tables willing to seek answers, willing to seek a resolution. Father God, we pray for our own country and we pray for the political negotiations at this time. Lord God, we pray that you would bring wisdom to our leaders. We pray that you would bring good solutions. We pray, Lord God, that the interests of others would be considered, not just the interests of what's best for this country. We pray, Lord God, for our local communities. We pray, Lord God, for our city. We pray that it might flourish once more. We pray that people would come to know you once again. Father God, we pray for our own congregation and our own friends and families. We pray, Lord God, for those who are unwell at this time. We pray, Lord God, as creator, that you would, as you have knitted them together once, you would re-knit them together, that you would bring your healing hand upon them, that you would restore them. We pray, Lord God, for those who are grieving, for those who have lost someone recently. We pray, Lord God, that you would be a comfort to them, that your presence, that your spirit in their lives, that they, through that, they would sense your comfort, being close to them. Lord God, I pray for all those in our lives that need our prayers, that need your help. And I leave some time now to bring before you the names on our hearts that we want to bring before you. Lord God, I thank you that you love us and that you care for us, that you are here among us, that you hear our prayers and that you will go with us from this place into our everyday lives. 
Father God, we lift all these prayers before you in your name. Amen. At this point, I'm going to ask if the offering could be taken. generous and loving God, source of all created things. You have blessed us, your creation, blessed us, your creation with many gifts, and each of us bears your commission to build your kingdom here on earth. We know at times we have denied our giftedness and dismissed the impact our gifts can have, but mighty and everlasting God, you willingly equip us with the strength, the insight, and the courage to meet the challenges life can send our way. Make us bold to live as Christ's disciples. When it seems like foolishness to many, may the gifts we offer to you today, the lives we live for you, the witness we make for you, be a testimony to the love of Christ who reconciled us to our Father God through his death and resurrection. As we leave this worship service, may our living bear witness to your giving. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Let's move to our closing him now, at the end of which I'll give a benediction, and then our service will be over. Let's have our closing hymn, Stand and Sing, Called to Be God's People.
Ephesians 3, 14 to 21 as our benediction, and then we'll end with the blessing. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. (coughs) 